This is Henry Rollins, and you are listening to KUCI Irvine. Hold on to that dial for dear life. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI on Ask a Leader, and I'm your host for the show today from 9 until 10. And I look forward to um, covering some special material, which I try to do up for you weekly because you are important to me, listeners. What we're going to do today is talk about the unraveling of the city government in Costa Mesa, uh, with the latest developments, and then we're going to take stock of the steadfast vigor of the late Sherwood Rowland, UCI professor of chemistry and Nobel laureate, who died last Saturday in nearby Corona Del Mar. Don't go away, folks. We'll be right back. Thank you for staying with us in on Ask a Leader. We have uh, today my two guests. First, um, we have uh, Sandra Guinness and Eleanor Egan. Sandy Guinness is a Republican educated at Stanford, and uh, she served on the Costa Mesa City Council from 1988 to 1996. There she was mayor from 1992 to 94. She served on the Orange County Charter Commission and was a member of the Orange County League of Cities Super Committee on Restructuring, for which she presided as chairman of the Charter Subcommittee. So she's got the bona fides folks to talk about charters today. She's currently a consultant with over 30 years of experience in public and private sector planning. Sandy was instrumental in the successful effort to take the Costa Mesa Fairgrounds off the auction block, maintaining, therefore, the status quo of the operations of that expansive public meeting space. And I'm so glad that we all still have that. Then um, she's also served on the Orange County Housing Commission and is a board member of the Bolsa Chica Land Trust, another really important institution in our region. My other guest, Ellen Egan, a Democrat, is a retired lawyer and a civic activist in Costa Mesa, bringing the needs of the long-neglected West Side to the attention of City Hall. She's also served on the Costa Mesa Planning Commission and on the board of the Costa Mesa Library Foundation. Folks, we're racking up all sorts of important institutions locally these women are involved with. Eleanor is a founding member of the Costa Masons for Responsible Government, a grassroots group of citizens formed last year in reaction to the city's Council's actions that have alarmed and angered the citizenry. The citizen group is strongly opposed to the charter that the city council has voted to put on the June primary election ballot, and they are campaigning against it. This organization and my two guests are the principal focus of this uh, larger share of the show today. Welcome to the show, Sandra Guinness and Eleanor Egan. Thank you. 
Sandra, you're still with us? Yes. Oh, good. You almost chimed in together. We didn't know there were two people there. Well, although we've covered some of the developments pertaining to Costa Mesa, it was a year ago, uh, the, the labor issues um, you know, on previous shows, I'd like for you, and um, we'll start with, uh, with Sandra Guinness, uh, for you to summarize for our radio audience a history of Costa Mesa's new city council that's drafted this municipal charter. So, uh, as I said, a year ago, uh, Nick Annis uh, with the Young Democrats, Jennifer Muir with the Orange County um, Public Employees Association, we talked about the repair Costa Mesa. Uh, what's happened since then, please, Sandra? Well, the city did issue the layoff notices to nearly half the city workforce. However, they haven't completed any of the outsourcing. They've been in litigation. They became aware that there were certain steps that contractually they were obligated to take in any outsourcing, which they had skipped, and so had to go back to the drawing board. There were certain things they wished to do by a proposal, i.e., you just kind of ask for generalized qualifications, and then you negotiate from there. And they were told they had to go back to a bid, which is something where you have specifications, and then you go with whoever has the best price, the lowest responsible bidder. Obviously, you're not going to go with someone not qualified. One would hope. But if the charter passed, they could. So there are a lot of other issues, though, that are pending. For example, the city has uh, pursued a long-term lease or what they're calling an operating agreement for one of our public parks. So we have a lot of other things that are going on. The labor issue is, is very important, but at the same time, I believe that people focus on that issue and there's a lot of other mischief that will affect our city for years to come. Well, and Eleanor, did you want to comment as well? Well, um, we are unfortunately approaching St. Patrick's Day, which is the anniversary of the suicide of one of the city employees. He had been out on sick leave with a, an injury, and he was called to City Hall to receive his pink slip. And instead of picking up his pink slip, he went up on the roof and slept to his death. So this is a, a, an unhappy time for us and an unhappy remembrance. It was a, it was a time when, it, as far as I'm concerned, it all began in February when stuff started appearing in the papers about a fiscal crisis due to um, what they called unfunded liabilities. And this, this is simply the, uh, the payments that the city is uh, supposed to pay to PERS, the Public Employees Retirement System, over the next, say, 30 years um, to fund the retirements of employees. And... Um, if you look at it as though it were due immediately, all of it, then yeah, it would be a crisis. But you know, it's to be it's to be paid over 30 years out of 30 years worth of revenues. So, you know, I looked into it. I I called up uh, Colin McCarthy, who had put a piece in the paper about it, and said, "What's this all about?" And he 
told me their point of view on it. Okay, I learned that. And that's when I started paying attention to what was happening. I had been sort of, you know, back into raising daffodils. Uh, oh, please. <laughs> and uh, not paying uh, a lot of attention to what was going on in the city. But that woke me up, and I started attending council meetings and been busy ever since. So I just want to point out, uh, I allowed you, Eleanor, for shifting gears with uh, what could be an, an exercise to bring down maybe who knows what your blood pressure had been. But uh, but instead of devoting to those daffodils, you really thought and sought out this this urgent development and decided to attend to that. And so I just want to take stock of that while we're talking about what's just moving on. It's a it's fast paced. Well, so. Um, given the current designs, um, what uh, do you think is important for the Costa Mesa, Costa Mesa constituency to be considering right now? I think what they need to know is what changes are possible, what are likely um, under the under the charter if it passes. Um, it's a it's a scary thing because what's most important about the charter is what isn't said. There there's a an extremely broad grant of uh, of power to the city council, basically saying we can do anything we want to unless it's uh, unless it conflicts with this charter or you know federal or state law. Um, and it, it sounds, you know, as you read it, it sounds innocuous, but boy, it really isn't. Um, and everything that is in the charter is the tip of the iceberg. Well, it's, yes, Sandra, you've got, um, uh, go ahead, finish that. And then at, when you're done, I wanted Sandra to talk to, you know, how, her, her background on what charters are supposed to look like and what's, what's different about that. But go ahead. You were saying about the tip of the iceberg. What, what are we uh, seeing floating toward the t- Titanic of the, the Costa Mesa citizenry? Uh, well, there, the, the charter gives the city council the power to change the rules for election. Um, they can change the date around um, so that instead of voting on the same days as everybody else and what you expect, they can alter the dates, and the charter doesn't say anything about giving public notice if they change the date. Are you serious? Uh, there will, of course, be something on the agenda uh, when they do that. And if you're, if you're an agenda watcher or a council watcher, you know what's going on. But if you're not paying that kind of close attention, you might assume that the election is the same time as everybody else votes, and there's no provision for publication in the charter. That's astounding, Eleanor. Then there's um, the qualifications for council members, uh, for candidates for council. Uh, we, you know, I I spoke with uh, James Righeimer, and who's the council member? The yes, charter. and council new council member. Yeah, he, he was elected in uh, November of 2010. Um, I, I spoke with him, um, and Sandy was there too. Uh, and we talked about the, the, the 
pitfalls of uh, not following state law on on uh, who can be a candidate for council. And they did add some language to the charter that said uh, that uh, candidates for council have to um, have to uh, meet the qualifications set forth in the in the uh, state code, but they didn't say, and we were no and, and no other qualifications can be added. So as I as I explained to him, um, the the council could create an additional requirement that in order to be a candidate for council, you must have served on a commission or committee appointed by the council. And you can see how that would allow the council to appoint their successors. And because we have term limits, a, a council member who's termed out could choose his successor and then make a deal with him, okay, when you're termed out, I'll run and we just switch back and forth like Putin and Medvedev. Oh, my goodness. It could happen. I'm not saying that, that that's what they're going to do. But the way the charter is written, now, they were alerted to this. I told Righeimer about what could happen. But the language that they put in doesn't preclude they're doing this. So these are just some of the things that are not said in a way that people reading the charter quickly or casually or not really studying it and understanding it could could miss entirely and they're very scary. Sandy, you want to comment too along those lines with all of the experience that you have with with the charter structuring around the county. Well, the thing is many charters have a provision that unless it's not in the charter, then general law will prevail. <clears throat> However, by contrast, our charter says if it's not in here, that doesn't mean the council doesn't get to do it, which is giant. For example, the charter doesn't say anything about sale of public property wow. or lease of public property. However, under general law, if you're going to lease out a, a public piece of property, say your park, for more than a certain limited time, there are steps to go through. You have to have a public hearing. It's subject to voter referendum. It's done by ordinance, which means you have two readings. However, if you become a charter city, that doesn't apply. So you could lease out a park for up to 99 years without a single public hearing. And even more strange, you wouldn't have to find that it was in that the bid that you took or the person with whom you negotiated provided the best economic return to the city. Likewise, public contract codes would not apply. And people don't realize that those codes have things such as hiring the lowest responsible bidder, requiring that all contractors be licensed. Do you really want unlicensed contractors doing this? Um, <clears throat> so competitive bid procedures. Now, our charter says that the council, by resolution or ordinance, will adopt procedures for contracting. And an ordinance, at least, is subject to, has to be approved by a majority of the council, which is three votes, and is subject to public hearings. And if it's really outrageous, the citizens could referend it. However, by resolution, 
if three people show up and two people vote yes and one votes no, you could establish these procedures with only two people, and resolutions are not subject to voter referendum. So I'm not saying this council could do things, but we don't know what will happen down the road. And so a resolution does not require a public notice either. So something appears on the agenda Friday night, Tuesday evening, contracting rules are changed, and somebody's buddy gets a contract. And that is very distressing, especially if you consider that we have a city council that wants to outsource a major portion of our city's services. Wow. So that's why um, Eleanor uses the Putin Medvedev um, analogy of uh, shuffling around and a uh, 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 patronage to um, offer the the contracts to um, uh, less than uh, you know maybe less than compet- through less than competitive competitive process. Excuse me. So um, me, yes, me something along that line. Yes, Eleanor. They've already done. They um, they hired attorneys for the various kinds of litigation that they're involved in. Um, in addition to the city attorney firm that uh, that serves as our city. Okay, there's a private firm that serves as our city attorney, um, and uh, they hired special counsel for the litigation. They hired one of the most expensive law firms in the state from San Francisco, and there was nothing in the contract that said, okay, this approves up to so many dollars, and if it has to go higher, you have to come back to us for further approval, which is what was always in every contract that right. I ever worked on when I worked for cities. So I, um, I pointed this out to the council and suggested they, they add that kind of provision. How did they react? They did not. And so, you know, this firm can rack up millions without the public ever hearing about it. You'd have to file a Freedom of Information Act in a way to find out what uh, the actual expenditures were for the firm? Well, after the fact, yes, you, you can find out. Um, after the, after the but the, that's too uh, late. The work has been done. It, uh, the uh, the warrant to pay the the, uh, the lawyers will be on the consent calendar on the agenda. Wow. Um, but you know, by then the money is owed. Right. Wow. <sighs> they've hired consultants to replace employees that have left. We lost all but one of our senior staff. All but one? All but one. Over the last 11 months? Yeah. Uh, it happened really fast. Our, um, our chief planner went to Newport Beach. Um, I don't know where everybody else went. We've been through two or three police chiefs. Uh, just, you know, all the departments had fled when they saw what was going on. Well, Eleanor, were they, did they resign or were they fired? They resigned. All because they couldn't deal with this kind of leadership dynamic going on. Well, they, they saw the handwriting on the wall. Um, the, uh, well, now, the city manager uh, was going to retire anyway. He had announced his intention to retire uh, either prior to the election or, or sh- no, surely, yes, 
definitely it was before. well prior to the election. Okay. So he, he retired anyway, and his, uh, his second-in-command has taken over that, that post. But all of our institutional memory has gone with, with these uh, very senior people who've left. Well, that's pretty critical when you have that kind of a brain drain with a an aggressive uh, restructuring going on. How that just seems like a lopsided kind of a political um, dynamic going on. It is. It is. There are a lot of empty offices in City Hall. And so, who's doing anybody doing this work? You said they're they're now outsourced. Well, what they've out- done is they've hired private consultants at you know pretty high prices to come in and fill in for these folks. Uh, after a screaming fiscal crisis and we, we have to cut the staff, right. they've brought in really high-priced consultants to do the work. And where are those consultants coming from, Eleanor and Sandra? Do you, can you uh, trace them? I mean, are they, they local or they're uh, like the attorneys on retainer from San Francisco? Well, one of them comes from a firm that is local. However, under state contracting rules, there are certain specialized services that up to a certain amount you can hire without competitive bid for subject to certain limits. And, for example, you can't uh, have someone lay asphalt without competitive bidding or, you, or take a tree trimming contract. However, if there's a certain professional need, right. and one of the firms that has provided Probably the largest share of the administrative function was picked because one of our council members had dealt with some of the people from that firm in a capacity, in his professional capacity, and he liked them, and so they were hired, and there they were on board. We had a PR person hired at $3,000 a week without any sort of notice. He just suddenly appeared on the horizon. And then subsequently, that position was made permanent. But by that time, obviously, he'd been on board for quite some time and had the inside track. And that was somebody who was a friend of of someone else's who had actually written an editorial in the local paper endorsing one of the new council members. My goodness. There's um, another firm that was hired um, in in a very broadly phrased contract, you see, you couldn't really say exactly what they were going to do, but apparently they were working principally on analyzing our workers' compensation system and, and making recommendations and that sort of thing. Um, what they did, the initial contract, uh, was for a relatively small amount I'm looking through my papers here. I got a bunch of things on it. Well, while you're looking at that, Eleanor, yeah, it's I'm hundred thousand. Okay. Um, and then once they were on contract, they just kept adding amendments for more money and more money and more money, and it went on and on. Well, it sounds like a sort of a redistribution going on away from the the rank and file, the uh, municipal employees to uh, private associations. Is that a fair characterization? I couldn't disagree with it. Yeah. And and this is all happening when uh, 
Council Member Righeimer and others on the on Costa Mesa City Council are talking about improving transparency and accountability. But that that irony, I, it's not lost on the people that you're uh, approaching, is it? I mean, you, let's talk about your campaign fanning out into uh, into the city and um, how are they reacting when we have something like the? I'm going to quote now what one of the um, what uh, the um, City. Oh, before we do that, I want to let all those listeners who've just joined us, my guests are Eleanor Egan and Sandra Gens, founders of the Costa Masons for Responsible Government, established as a countermeasure to the municipal charter proposed in the city of Costa Mesa and due on the June primary ballot this year. Um, the quote was dealing with, um, I'm trying to f- shuffle this through here. Um, I can't... Um, Oh, Claudia, my. may I correct one point? Go to we it, please. Not, we were not formed to deal with the charter. The charter came along months after we were formed. Okay. We were formed in response to the various kinds of actions of the city council uh, starting in, in February, as far as I know, of 2011. Ah, goodness. Okay, so I... What I was trying to find, it's the it's council member, and please help me with my pronunciation. Is it Eric Beaver? Yes. Yes. Okay, that he was saying, if you don't like what we're doing, tough luck. So how are constituents responding to that kind of uh, comportment or the lack of it? Well, when I was out leafleting, I had, for example, on Saturday, I gave one gentleman a flyer, and he said he was so mad at the city council he could spit nails. I would hand flyers to people just just saying there's a meeting regarding the charter, not one way or the other, and they would respond, oh, yeah, they want to do this so they could hire their buddies with no-bid contracts, or they want to do this so they could make sure they and their buddies keep getting elected. So this is always hyphenated with who's who's the patronage here. Yeah. Who's the Ben? Yes. And I'm not I'm not telling these people this. They are coming up with this as I hand them the paper. So when Steve uh, Menzinger comes up, another council member of City uh, Costa Mesa, when he comes up with the commentary such as what we read in Sunday's uh, Daily Pilot, uh, then. They, they're, they're all watching this pretty closely, and they, there seems to be a fair amount of literacy then amongst the constituency in Costa Mesa. Definitely. There's a, a very high interest level. Now, there are some people who still aren't aware, so we're going to work real hard to get the word out. But there is a lot of interest just based on people coming up in the supermarket and in parking lots of shopping centers and asking questions or making comments about the charter. They realize that some people have tried to paint this as a labor management issue, and that is part of it. And there are some major players on both sides who are obviously helping stir the pot. However, there are profound implications for the future of Costa Mesa with other issues. For example, as Eleanor cited, the elections issue and we could, um, or as I did, sell, leasing out public parks for 99 years. There are land use implications because a charter city is freed of certain land use regulations that are in the government code. 
And so I look at certain things that were stopped because people turned out, but had this charter been in place, they might not have even known what was going on. Right, right. No disclosure. That's pretty unnerving that the the lack of hearings and other uh, procedures that make their um, the operations more transparent are dispensed with in this proposed charter. Well, I um, want to hear uh, some some a thing about your um, the demographics of the people that are joining the fold of the Coastal Masons for Responsible Government. Talk to me about who all of all, all kinds of stripes are helping join you in um, putting this charter in clear definition before the primary ballot is voted on. We have conservative Republicans. We have liberal Democrats. Uh, we have libertarians, we have business owners, we have homeowners, we have renters, just all sorts of people. From You know, <laughs> you don't really, it doesn't really matter what your your political orientation is or, or what type of stake you have. If you have a stake in this city, uh, chances are real good that you're against this charter if you know about it. Okay, and... And what's the percentage, let's say, of those whom you've contacted who are on board as far as knowing what's going down? I'm sorry. I'd like to know the percentage of the people that you approach about the charter measure. I haven't contacted anybody who was in favor of the charter. Uh, A lot of people didn't appear to know about it until I handed them a a, a flyer. but those who knew about it, you know, <laughs> they kind of, one, one guy got a kind of snarly look on his face when I, I invited him to the, the teach-in that we're having on Thursday. Oh, yes, we'll talk evening. about that when we talk about where people can take this interview and continue on with the, um, take, take the takeaway message. But we'll, we'll, we'll give uh, all kinds of contact information, all that. But you were saying, so while getting people on board for attending on Thursday night, you were saying about... Yeah, he got a kind of snarly look on his face, and I told him, it's not the city who's presenting this. This is a group of neighbors who are opposed to the charter. And then, you know, he was, okay, you know, <laughs> it was very much in agreement. Okay, um, yes. I had one person just say, oh, I hate the city council. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you working with uh, neighbor to neighbor, door knocking on door after door, or are you working with people that are uh, likely voters? How are you um, uh, pr- putting together this um, campaign? Well, at this point, we did what would be considered a saturation drop of literature, essentially leaving flyers on people's doorsteps. And part of that is you don't know who's going to come out. Uh, At this point, there are people who are not registered, but maybe they'll get mad enough to go ahead and do that. I would like to see more people actually register and participate. And then, of course, we will be knocking on doors after this initial pull, after this initial push. We will be knocking on doors and speaking with voters individually. 
Well, Sandra, what's to keep you from just distributing voters' registration forms while you're knocking on those doors? Nothing. I always carry them with me. Oh, you do? Have, yeah. <laughs> I've got a bunch in the car. Okay, so those are coming along with. Well, let's not, uh, let's, let's, while we're talking about Thursday night, let's talk about where and when, how and who then, uh, so people know. That's March 16th. Where oh, are you 15th. meeting? 15th. Uh, 15th. Whoops. Thursday. Uh, Oh yes. So where are um, where are you meeting? At what time? Let's let listeners know uh, how they can uh, follow up on what we're talking today. Well, it's at the Costa Mesa Neighborhood Community Center. The address is eighteen forty five Park. It's right next to the library, behind the Courtyard Shopping Center. It's pretty easy to find. It's at six thirty. We will have presentations on some of the issues, and what we really want to do is answer people's questions, too. We want to get the information out, but if people have specific questions, I would urge them to attend because we've researched a lot of the state law, what's in the Constitution. I believe I've read the city charter, oh, going on 20-some times now just because I'm always looking up something. So we've all developed a high degree of familiarity with the issues going on. And and if somebody has a question that we aren't prepared to answer, I think we're pretty well committed to researching the answer because we want to know as much about this as possible. And we've worked real hard to do that. And we'd like to share that information with the rest of the community. So it'll be the two of you plus other members of yes. the yes. Costa Masons? For... Uh-huh. Okay, good, 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 good. Well, um, I I want to we're, we're, we've just alluded to, but let's talk about it directly now. Um, whether uh, there is a bit of a proxy battle going on, is it just the city council, or is it somebody pulling strings from beyond the city, beyond the county? Sandra, do you want to take that up? Well, we did have a, vo- a visit to our city. Ca- well, we've had several visits to our city council from people who represented other groups. For example, early on. A speaker came to uh, from Oceanside, who was on the Oceanside City Council. Oceanside adopted a very similar charter, and then we had an Sandra. Individual. When was that? I believe it was it was just recently in the last year. Or so. Okay, it's in the works. Then along the yeah. the movement is occurring. Escondido has a similar charter on the docket for November. At least they're doing in they're doing the general election where you'll have a better turnout, which I have to at least applaud them for that. All right. Uh, and then we were visited by a group, well, a person who identified himself as being with the quote Dayton Institute. However, it turns out that he's also affiliated with a group, Associated Building something. It's called the ABC, and they are. Uh, a group of contractors that is anti-union. They do not do project labor agreements, and it's their mission to eliminate any of those, I guess, apparently. But anyway, they have appeared at our meetings and have, as I understand it, have been involved in fostering these types of things in various communities. They were... They appeared in Escondido. They appeared elsewhere, down in San Diego County. And there is, as you know, a strong anti-union fight going on, 
not just here, but Wisconsin goes on and on and on throughout the country. And that's an important element of this charter. And I think there are those who would love to paint this as labor management issue. That's the only thing about this charter. So when you go to vote, you know, are you on, on is it labor or management? But there are so many things. It's, um, how would I put it? You know, don't waste a good crisis. We are in a nationwide, well, we're, I think we're pulling out of it, a nationwide financial problem. And once again, don't waste a good crisis. Exaggerate your own crisis. For example, it, we were told that the city would end the last fiscal year $1.4 million in the whole. Instead, we ended up $3.8 million in the black, so essentially $5 million ahead. And this was the past fiscal year that ended last June 30th, which meant that none of the policies that our, our new regime had put in were in place. We still had our police helicopter program. We hadn't yet cut our police force. We hadn't had many of the numerous draconian cuts that we were told were necessary, and we still came out $3.8 in the black. But if you manufacture a crisis, not only can you bring in policies that address that particular issue, you could slide in a lot of other things. For example, the issues that we talked about previously, where they would enhance the power of the city council and undermine the rights of residents. Well, um, for those of you who just tuned in, we're still talking with uh, representatives and founders of Costa Masons for Responsible Government. That's Eleanor Egan and Sandra Gannis. Um, we're talking about the lead up to the primary ballot uh, measure that will overhaul the city of Costa Mesa's charter. And I want you two to talk to, in the time we have remaining, what is uncanny about... Now, you mentioned uh, quickly, um, Oceanside adopted their measure. Now, uh, what I want to say in the way of talking about what the process here is with the primary ballot for Costa Mesa, how did Oceanside adopt their measure? Because you talked about Escondido is going to put it on the general election ballot. But what, what do we learn from Oceanside's experience? How was it? Well, Oceanside actually adopted their charter very quickly, similar to the process that was done in Costa Mesa. Instead of having commissions that met over a series of months and and took public input, considered each suggestion on its merits, uh, they they did a similar rush process to Costa Mesa. But who voted? I mean, it was adopted and, and by... it was put before the voters. It, it was. was done very quickly before people really had a chance to wake up. And the interesting thing is Oceanside now has an amendment, is putting together an amendment for their voters, which would further enhance the power of their city council. I guess this was the first run. Now, our, our charter, I think, does it more than I would like to see to enhance the, the power of the city council. And, and it's easier because the problem is once you have a charter is that in order to amend, you could have the city council put a measure on the ballot when they so choose. However, for the citizens to amend a city charter, you have to have a petition signed by 15% of the voters. That of the previous is, election? Uh, excuse me? The 15% of the voters from the previous election. No, 15% of the people who are registered to vote. Oh, my when you gosh. you consider that some of the people have moved or passed away, 
Uh, that's a high hurdle. In Costa that's, Mesa, that's approximately 8,700 signatures. That's huge. Uh, in order to change certain provisions in general law that we have, you only need a petition, or, or in our municipal code, you only need a petition signed by 10% of your voters. So that's a huge hurdle to begin with. Right. And then right. the council has the option of setting the election when they so choose. And because of the way the state code is written regarding charter cities, not for general law, but regarding charter cities, there's an option of when you hold the election. And if on a first reading you would assume it's you would put it at the next pending election, right. as you would in a general uh-huh, law city. Uh-huh. However, in a charter city, you can put it off for a couple years because you have a statewide presidential election, a statewide gubernatorial election, you have a a general municipal election, and you get to pick. And that happened in Huntington Beach. The citizens did manage to collect signatures on a petition, which in Huntington Beach, which is a huge city, had to be a a huge, huge undertaking. And then the council put the ballot measure off not to the subsequent election, but to the election over two years later, and they very freely admitted it was so that they could take the time to develop the opposition to the measure. And that was litigated, and the courts said they didn't like it, but that's the way the law was written. So we have then the urgency at this point of Costa Mesa, uh, the the final iteration of the charter measure was put on uh, the city council docket was on the 6th, of March on the ninth was when you had all to collect um, comments, and there's ten more days tacked on for any rebuttals against the countermeasure. Exactly. So uh, this, the the charter measure. So at this point, you've got your work cut out for you to get uh, the public on board for the June fifth, twenty twelve primary election. As you said, Sandra, it's it's a different uh, kind of. Uh, dynamic a composition or turnout when you have a primary election versus a general. So it's uh, it makes it uh, real difficult to get everybody, um, you know, sufficiently motivated to turn out for primaries. It structurally works out that way. Um, so what um, so we have uh, and we know that this uh, deadline is here because that's a, that is a state mandated uh, schedule. There's no there's no overruling any of this. And that was I guess that was perhaps the design of the city council just to move this right, the last iteration right up against the deadlines for the primary ballot measures uh, um, construction? Yes, the schedule provides the minimum public hearings required by state law, and some cities have many, many more, but this is the minimum required by state law, and the charter was initially introduced late at night on December 6th, right before everybody went off to celebrate the various holidays. So this does not appear to be a process designed to foster public input. There were, however, hundreds of suggestions submitted by residents. However, the council only even discussed just a, a little handful. They, the vast bulk of them they did not even address publicly. Wow. So let's get um, out the information for those listeners and the people that are going to be hearing the podcast, we hope we turn this thing around very quickly, is that uh, they can reach, first there's the city clerk, 
where comments can be sent now rebutting um, aspects of the characterization of the, the proposed charter for Costa Mesa. The city clerk uh, can be written to uh, by writing to the city of Costa Mesa, P.O. Box 1200 in Costa Mesa, zip codes 92628-1200. That's the post office box in there. And uh, you can also get involved uh, with challenging this charter measure by getting information from the Costa Masons for uh, for responsible government. Their web page is cm number four, cm4rg.org. And you can get a hold of Eleanor Sandy and uh, all of the people that are raising. You can't even get a hold of these people that my guests today, they're they're always out there in the field, always meeting and uh, calling and writing. So uh, um, this is the first time I've had a chance to talk to Sandra since uh, we were uh, planning this show some, some month ago, I believe. So um, uh, these are ways, though, you can uh, make your comments be heard, Improve your literacy on what's involved. I mean, uh, Sandra's been doing this for years, and so it's uh, she's distilling all of her city planning, city uh, advocating, and uh, commission, and city council expertise into this. It's a it's a wealth of knowledge, and it's as we said, it's a lopsided kind of a, a situation with uh, contracted employees now taking the place of all that were all the institutional memory left from the senior uh, managers of the city government. Well, I I want to thank both of you, Eleanor Egan and Sandra Guinness, for being on Ask a Leader today. And I wish you well. We'll, we'll follow up what's happened after the primary. Perhaps uh, you might be available to talk and distill uh, what had happened once the election has taken place. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Well, I thank you very much. Uh, We're going to um, give you a... a, I'm going to get my little jingle here going um, so that we can... uh, We'll take you out on this tune. It's it's called Hall of Mirrors by uh, my uh, Bela Fleck favorite guy. Thank you both. Good luck. We'll talk later on as developments continue. Thank you. Well, that was tremendous hearing. We wanted to uh, make sure that you got a chance to hear... The uh, the women that have really been busy putting together this effort uh, to let uh, constituents know what could happen, and it's it's happening as you heard in Costa Mesa, in uh, Oceanside, Escondido, and throughout the Southern California region. We'll be back with a remembrance of Sherwood Rowland. Unfortunately, we didn't have uh, his uh, colleague to talk to us um, today. We're going to talk to him. I hope later on this month. Uh, about his collaboration with Sherwood Rome, but we will take stock with what the city has done, with what he, his legacy is in terms of the science speaking truth to power. Be right back. Well, welcome back to Ask a Leader. I want to take a moment with you uh, 
today to reflect on the passing here of Sherwood Rowland, founder of UCI's Department of Chemistry and in the vanguard of advancing our understanding of the link between chlorofluorocarbons and the depletion of the Earth's ozone layer. You'll be hearing a lot more about his contributions, and I encourage listeners to watch for upcoming occasions to mark his career here at UCI, around the country, and around the world. And I wanted to um, just consider a few passages that um, have been coming. Now, it's, it's, he's been covered in the press for so very many years. Uh, many of you are reading in the New York Times today, yesterday in the Los Angeles Times, but it was We'll go back to when the New York Times in uh, 19, uh, let me see here, it was in the in 1985, in uh, 89, was looking at um, his contributions here um, in by, uh, an article filed by Robert Reinhold um, that among the ranks of the American states, the cities and counties, there was a, an impatient pace of international efforts to protect the Earth's ozone layer. And uh, the City Council of Irvine approved at uh, 1989 the most far-reaching measure to control ozone-depleting materials. So it was to their credit, uh, with Mayor Larry Agron at the helm, that uh, Irvine adopted this ordinance that prohibited the use of nearly all chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs and related compounds in any industrial process except, as, as they said, in the manufacture of drugs and medical devices and uh, with uh, where military specifications were involved. Uh, it banned the sale and the use of plastic foam food packaging if the chemical compounds were used in the manufacture and will prohib- pro- would be prohibiting the use of building insulation containing the compounds. It went in effect on July 1st, 1990. So Larry Agron leading that form with, with this op- moral obligation in this matter. And uh, this is the same urgency that Sherwood Rowland um, had so many years uh, since his findings in 1972 and beyond about uh, making this connection with the chlorofluorocarbons and ozone depletion uh, and leading up into his um, Nobel Prize that he uh, uh, won with his uh, colleague uh, Mario Molina, as well as the um, the third, uh, whose name is going to escape me at, right at this moment. Um, and I, I had my own personal sort of brush with his greatness along this kind of business. I received a mail and uh, was reading in the, the Orange County Weekly uh, some some bleeding out from the Congressman John Campbell's office, he representing this district here where UCI is located, the office making false claims about the trends in global change. And I, I, did, I don't have that piece of mail with me. I wish I could read it to you today, but I can't hold on to everything, folks. Uh, I can assure you, though, it was a very illiterate, piece of work and this is a this is a standard bear of the Orange County congressional delegation the, the depth and the range of their thought and I I found it really unnerving that they could be so dismissive of the work by the distinguished Sherwin Rowland in their midst and I, I tried tracking down Sherwin Rowland I wanted to give him this uh, latest political rant so he could directly address that and uh, defang that kind of uh, discussion um, uh, it was important for me to address this. This was in the early 2000 aughts, and um, 
And for, for one thing, it was very difficult to get an appointment with him, mostly because he was on the constant go. And as I was looking up some background on him, I, I learned that uh, he had transitioned um, once he, his science was out and uh, he was getting greater acceptance. And once he received the Nobel Prize, he was often on frequent uh, speaking engagements that he'd received invitations to speak overseas every 10 days or so. And his duties uh, as the foreign secretary for the National Academy of Sciences kept him extremely busy. And he was an advisor to the president at that time. Um, Sherwood Rowland, as they said, uh, is a, was a 180,000 mile a year flyer, sometimes hitting four countries, folks, in a single month. So that's why I could never get a hold of him. But the staff for him uh, was kind enough to pass on the the article that I wanted to show him. Well, he's quoted as saying that uh, he was, um, he never made sense, it never made sense to me that when there's something which is of public interest and public discussion, that the scientists who actually understand the problem and know something about it should stay in their laboratories and let the lobbyists who don't know anything about it it argue about it. That seems to me to be the wrong way to run society. That was a quote from Sherwood Rowland, some, I believe, in the 1997 when uh, the L.A. Times was interviewing him. So uh, eventually I did get to meet with him when he wasn't out and about uh, giving us the, the lowdown. And uh, at that point, around 2002, 2003, he was very concerned with the Bush administration cutbacks in NASA expenditures, creating a data gap in the uh, important work done by the Roland Blake Research Group's ongoing study of the quality of the air and the atmosphere traffic by then, the, uh, by commercial airliners. So with that data gap, and how can we know more about the trends if there's a, just a blank space where we try to plot the trends? Well, I uh, am running out of time at this point. I, I want to encourage people to take a look at the um, exhibit at Langston Library at UCI. Uh, it's going to be there until April, so you can take a break from the term paper writing and uh, finals preparation and see uh, what you can. It's an incredible uh, uh, array of, of his work, letters leading up to his uh, major breakthrough findings. So I think that's a wrap today for uh, Ask a Leader. Next up is George Rosales with George Hat a Hat. Thanks for joining me today, folks. <music>